According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Jeremiah this morning, Jeremiah chapter 18. Continuing our roller coaster, we're doing Isaiah and Jeremiah back to back. 66 chapters of Isaiah, which we covered in 66 Sundays. And now we're in the process of 52 Sundays for the book of Jeremiah. Today brings us to Jeremiah 18. Appreciate our hymns this morning. Potter and the Clay, connecting very well here to uh, Jeremiah 18, because Jeremiah gets to take a field trip. He gets to uh, go to the potter's house and receive a vision and receive a message. And uh, some messages, most messages, I suppose, you get in your study. Uh, Other messages, though, come from field trips and places beyond your study. And uh, this is the case here for Jeremiah this morning. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time together, setting aside distractions, humbling ourselves under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for your truth. Rejoicing, Father, in your faithfulness. I thank you for the message last hour and the, the blessing and encouragement that it is, Father, to uh, just see your word unfold and to see your faithfulness in the life of our brother Robert. Father, we're looking forward now this hour to feasting upon your truth and asking, Father, for your blessing to uh, open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you, Father, that the word of God is not earthly material, not dependent upon how smart we are to figure these things out but it's entirely dependent upon how faithful you are to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. So, Father, teach us through thy teaching ministry of thy Holy Spirit and bless our time in your word today. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah 18. You know, I think just these first couple of verses are enough to preach on at some length related to human attitudes pertaining to doctrine, to the Word of God, um, because he's being told to go to a certain place at a certain time to receive his teaching. And, well, why should that be? Why can't I just stay home and learn on my own? Or why why do I have to go to certain places at certain times? Say, oh, I don't know, Cross Park Drive at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And that's a designated time and a designated place and in the will of God that these are the venues in which uh, the Word of God goes forth for our edification. And uh, when he chooses to deviate from the norm, uh, he makes his will known, and so we, uh, we will do that. And this is the, the humility here. So when Jeremiah is told to arise and go down, then he rises and goes down. So verse 3 says, I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. And you might expect that's what a potter does, and uh, that's where he is. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. And I have to wonder just how amazing is this? You know, how accomplished is this potter? And how many potters do they have in town anyway? I got more questions than answers this morning, I think, in, in terms of this chapter. Um, but the Lord said, go to the potter's house, and he went to the potter's house. And he didn't have to be told which potter or which house or, you know, however many there are in the neighborhood. I, it, was, it was obvious, that's the potter, all right? And if you're the one potter in town, in a, in a city the size of Jerusalem, how many pots does this guy make? You know, they, they, they must make, this guy's got to make hundreds of pots, thousands of pots, supplying pots to everybody in Jerusalem. And, and I'm wondering, why is it at this very moment that Jeremiah walks in and he's watching and the, the, the clay is ruined, the pot is ruined? And you think, man, what are the odds of that? You know, I mean, you're going and you're watching a master craftsman. You're watching somebody that's been doing this, his art for years and years. And, and, you know, an accomplished pianist or an accomplished violinist or anything of skill. And they've been doing it for so long. And then you walk in and all of a sudden it's just wrecked. (laughs) And you wonder, wow, what perfect timing. And that's exactly the point. And I think it's vital that we can start to humble ourselves under God's perfect timing because there are no coincidences in the will of God. 
as God takes us where we need to be and when we need to be there, and He shows us what we need to be seeing, and He verifies with us that we're seeing what we're looking at. All right? Because God is so faithful to teach us in these regards. So as we begin the chapter, um, we're moving to the potter's house for his next Bible class. The potter's house is Yahweh's visual aid to teach Jeremiah the doctrine of potter and clay. And there's different categories of potter and clay. As we just sang in our hymn, there's a personal context for potter and clay. Each one of us in a personal context for this doctrine obviously relate to our Creator on this basis. Um, But then there's a national context for potter and clay. And I think it's the national context that often gets overlooked, and yet that's the application to be found here in this chapter, is the national context for the doctrine of potter and clay. God not only is molding each individual believer, but God also has complete sovereignty over the rise and fall of nations. According to Acts 17, of course, he establishes their appointed boundaries, uh, or their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God has absolute sovereignty over human affairs. And so this is uh, going to be the visual age. They didn't have uh, tablets or, or PowerPoint or other uh, techno-gizmos for, for uh, visual aids. Uh, they, had, they did it the old-fashioned way back in Bible times. And so Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and he watches the fashioning of this pot. And he watches in the process here, it gets wrecked. So the vessel that he was making, again, verse 3, I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it had pleased the potter to make. See, while it's still in that molding stage, while it's still soft and malleable, prior to it being baked, prior to it being hardened in its final form, it's, it, you can wreck it. And, and you can just, you know, it's like Play-Doh, kids playing with Play-Doh, right? And you just, you got another lump and you just re-lump it, lumpify it and, and, and just keep working on it. And that's what he does here. And what a visual image, all right? For the national application, certainly, but I think also in our personal application as well. We have a scripture in the New Testament that talks about us being a new lump. And uh, we want to apply the doctrine of uh, being a new lump that we studied, if you recall, back in, in, I think it was 2 Corinthians that we had, or 1 Corinthians that we had looked at that. In any event, it was wrecked. So he remade it into another vessel just as it pleased the potter to make. And what's interesting too, when you're a craftsman or when you're a creative person, and I I understand this third hand, right, intellectually, because I I don't have that kind of creativity, but a musician or an artist or someone, it's amazing. They can see things that the rest of us, you know, don't see. I was going to say normal people, but I'll just say boring people. Don't see things, right? They look at a blank canvas, and I just see a blank canvas. But no, they see this artwork, right, in their mind's eye before it ever gets on paper. Or a carpenter sees the, the shape of a box, or a, a musician that's crafting a tune, or whatever it may be. All right? I knew a man in Spokane that carved logs, and, and he looked at this log for a year before he decided that that log was Elijah. And then he, he started going to work with his tools, and, and you know, six months later, that log was Elijah. That was Elijah standing there with a staff in hand and pointing a bony finger out at somebody. And it had been a log prior to that, see. And I think that's interesting. I think our Creator designed us, with, many of us, with creativity, all right? And some of us are still searching to find our creativity. But we are creative in the image of God, our Creator. And so he can see this. It's interesting in verse 3, there he was making something on the wheel. <laughs> Jeremiah didn't know what it was. He's just making something. Okay, I don't know what it is. But it's a lump and it's going to become something when the potter's done with it. And the potter knows what it is even if Jeremiah does not. And likewise, when he has to remake it, it is as it pleased the potter to make. As it pleased the potter to make. The pot doesn't get any contributions or input or suggestions. That <laughs> The pot doesn't get to say, excuse me, if you don't mind, I'd really like to be this. All right, And, and lo and behold, the, the potter hasn't designed you for that. The potter's making a, a chamber pot, and you're going to have much more humble uses in, uh, in different ways. All right. And so watching this whole process, watching the lump get wrecked and get remolded into something new, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, all right, it's not just the visual aid, it's not just the picture, God makes sure that Jeremiah understands what he's supposed to understand, that he's truly seeing what he's looking at, that he's going he's to uh, comprehend the doctrine that applies here in this, uh, 
in this. Can I not, O house of Israel, verse 6, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, the clay in the potter's hand, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. He says this metaphor is, is making a point, and this is the reality. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. Some messages are, are not happy messages, right? The destruction messages, the woe messages. And yet, what if they respond? If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. See, the very prov- the provocation of that message is designed to provoke repentance, and if it provokes repentance, then God is delighted to not apply the judgment that he had spoken of. The flip side is also true. At another moment, in verse 9, or at another moment, this is a chapter that's full of moments, right? Moment to moment to moment. That very moment he showed up and saw the thing ruined. The moment that God speaks. I think it's vital that we, that we have to be consistently in the Word of God day by day because what if we miss that moment? And we say, well, you know, once a month's enough or a couple times a year. No, it's day by day by day by day. I've got to be in the Word of God because when is that moment going to come? When is that moment going to come that that conviction hits me that I've got to listen to? So verse 9, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice. So some messages are happy messages. Hey, blessings on the way. Good things are coming up. Great things are down the road. And yet the human response might then turn dark and might then get prideful and might then operate uh, in the wrong direction. Well, is God bound then to, to do what he said he was going to do when they're responding this way based on, on their rebellion? And so if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which, with which I had promised to bless it. And so you see, it, it, both sides of the coin are represented here in this, in this doctrine. All right, so here's some points to consider. The sovereignty of God coordinated the perfect timing of Jeremiah's observation with a potter's ruined and remade vessel. I mean, what were the odds? <laughs> what were the odds that the moment Jeremiah walks in and sees what's happening, that lump gets wrecked, and the potter has to remold it and start over and do something new? That very moment, and the Bible is full of these stories. I love these absolute stories, these momentous happenstances, all right? They are never accidental. God has sovereign control of everything, moment by moment, from Alpha to Omega. And so if you are at a place, at a time, and you see something, God may be showing that to you, all right? We need to identify this as it relates to what He's teaching you, all right? It's not going to be different from the Word of God. It's not going to be in violation of the canon of Scripture. But at the time you're happening to do a particular study in a particular book or particular doctrine, and then God opens up your eyes to see something, right? Like maybe you, the, the ministry of, of a local church happens to be in a passage like Galatians 6.1, and then at that very moment, at that very time, there is he opens your eyes to see a a restoration ministry, to see an opportunity to restore such a one, looking to yourself lest you, you too be tempted. That timing is not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's God's sovereignty at work. And we can rejoice over that. These momentous happenstances are never accidental. And um, some verses on this, I enjoy uh, Genesis 37, verses uh, 25 through 28. And I think um, I'm going to play with my new toys this morning. We'll just, uh, we'll just go there. Genesis 37, what did I say, 25 through 28? I did, all right. And uh, in, in this chapter, uh, Joseph's brothers, are, uh, they hate him. He's wearing his coat of many colors, and, and they're gonna, they throw him down this well. They're deciding how they're going to kill him. And, uh, and at that moment, here's a coincidence, they sat down to eat a meal, and, uh, which you know I always get hungry when I throw my brother down a well. Um, <laughs> they... They raised their eyes and looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it to kill our brother or cover up his blood? 
Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. And so just at that moment, it just so happened, right? And then some Midianite traders passed by. Well, what do you know? Second coincidence. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. But see, if you know the story, Joseph has to go to Egypt. Egypt is going to be the provision for God to provide for his people. There's a famine on the way, and and the nation of Israel has to be preserved. But they're going to be preserved by Joseph in Egypt, who's by this time then going to be elevated uh, to second in command behind Pharaoh. There's a lot more like that too. With, with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and getting trapped all alone in the house and she ambushes him and grabs his shirt and he runs out without a shirt. All those coincidences. The whole life of Joseph is a story of coincidence after coincidence after coincidence, meaning it's the story of God's faithfulness to control our circumstances step by step. He goes to jail and there's the baker and the butler, right? It's amazing, that whole story. Other examples, 1 Samuel nine fifteen through 21. I like this one as well. And um, the people are demanding a king in this uh, chapter. They're totally out of the will of God. And God doesn't want them to have a king yet. But they're demanding it because all the other nations have kings. And it's interesting as God organizes circumstances whereby Saul's father's donkeys run off. They get lost. And Saul's father sends Saul to find these donkeys. And all of this is in God's control. And even a day early, Samuel gets a briefing. This is, this is a powerful chapter. I think it's indicative of Jeremiah and Isaiah, all the prophets, and their daily briefings. Hey, uh, uh, you know, about this time tomorrow, see, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall appoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I regarded my people because their cry has come to me. And so God has total control of all the circumstances and he briefs his prophets ahead of time. And so the next day, uh, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, (laughs) that's the guy I told you about yesterday, that's him, right? Think about it. And this is so common. John the Baptist was looking for the Christ, looking for the Christ, looking for the Christ, and then here comes the dove out of heaven and the voice says, behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All right, God makes sure that his prophets see what they're looking at and that they listen to what he's saying and that they understand the impact of what is to be communicated. And uh, so Saul walks up to him and says, please tell me where the seer's house is. And huh, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> I'm the seer. Glad to meet you. Donkeys are taken care of. Relax. All right, and he goes on and he's going to anoint, uh, anoint him king of Israel. Uh, and then maybe the best of all is 1 Kings twenty-two thirty-four. And uh, I might even back up to verse 22 here to show you some of the behind the scenes truth. It involves demons. It involves fallen angels and different beings in the invisible realm that God allows to be agents to impact things in the visible realm. And so um, Micaiah the prophet here is saying, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. All right, good angels on one side, fallen angels on the other, I imagine. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. And I suspect if the human involved is an unbeliever, there's not a lot of excitement. But if it's a believer and God says, all right, open season on Job or open season on Samuel or or what have you, man, I bet you the fallen angels, the demons, they start lining up. (laughs) Ooh, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And uh, so a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I'll entice him. And the Lord said, how? Well, I'll go out and be a deceiving spirit of the mouth of all his prophets. And he said to him, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. All right, now this is kind of a behind the scene look. And when God gives permissive will for fallen angels, for demons to operate in the earthly realm, not only gives them permission, but says, you're going to succeed in this. This plan's going to work. Not because the, the demon's so smart or the fallen angel knows what he's doing. Because God's sovereignty is going to control events in what follows. And so what follows then is kind of interesting. I'll just scroll on up here. Um, and this is so comical, it, it could almost be in a, in a YouTube skit or something. Um, 
So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth-Gilead. Remember they were divided in north, northern kingdom, southern kingdom? And they decided to team up and, and share a war together. And, um, and, and Jehoshaphat was a good king, mostly, except for this terrible alliance with the northern king. And so the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, hey, here's a brilliant idea. I'll disguise myself and go into battle, uh, but you put on your robes. So I'm going to dress like a, you know, a buck private soldier, nobody, and, and you're going to go dressed up as the, the, the big fancy king. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, saying, do not fight with small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, ah, it's got to be him. Right? He's the one dressed like a king. He's wearing the robes. And uh, so they turned aside to fight against him. Jehoshaphat cried out, and then they got close enough and said, no, that's not him. Verse 34. Now a certain man, just a random guy, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. Just a random schmuck with a random arrow just pierced through a joint in the armor. Isn't that amazing? So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight, for I'm severely wounded. And, and it's, it's amazing. This chapter is full of, of, of reminders of how powerful our God is and how he arranges the circumstances. And what seems to be random is not random. All right? I call it Calvinist luck because it's, it's the sovereignty of God that just glorifies himself every step of the way. It's a beautiful thing. So these momentous happenstances are never accidental. Another point here in the early part of chapter 18. At particular moments, God communicates messages of calamity or blessing to a nation or a kingdom. And I don't know that we have people today that are listening to those moments. I'm listening. I'm listening because I'm I'm teaching this chapter, I'm teaching this book, and I, I taught Isaiah, now I'm teaching Jeremiah, and I'm wondering, what message is the United States of America being given right now? Are we being given the Isaiah message or the Jeremiah message? In Isaiah's day, there was a humble king named Hezekiah that responded, and, and the nation was preserved. In Jeremiah's day, there was an evil king named Zedekiah, and nobody was listening to anything, and they got destroyed. And particularly in a presidential election year, it's easy to consider and wonder, um, you know, are we going to get a Hezekiah or a Zedekiah or neither? Or what are we, what are we going to get? In, uh, are we listening to this message? And it's particularly interesting, if you ever do demographic studies, a nation or a kingdom. Not every nation has a kingdom. And what happens if a nation loses their kingdom? They're still identified as a people group, but what kind of sovereignty does the Cherokee nation have anymore? All right. Uh, you can be a nation without a kingdom. And you can have multiple nations within a kingdom. And God still has a sovereignty over all of this. And what happens if the American nation no longer has the American kingdom related to our own national sovereignty? Now, let's see. Pay attention. Now, some folks, uh, this, this gets into some deeper things I'm going to get into this morning. We don't have time for it this morning, but this would be something, because it uses language like relent or repent or change my mind. This, this is a great chapter to illustrate the sovereignty of God, the foreknowledge of God, how he voices things for, to prompt a human response. He uses language of accommodation. God knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do ahead of time. All right? These messages may not reflect what God's foreknowledge has designed, but they are always crafted to provoke a response by those with ears to hear. All right? And so in the first case, if he says, I'm going to destroy you, and they repent, well, he knew they were going to repent. He gave them that I'm going to destroy you message to provoke that repentance. And so it's not as if he was clueless or God's up there in heaven winging it, you know, switching to plan B when he has to. All right. He says those messages knowing full well in advance what the outcome is going to be and what his response is going to be. Uh, I like Genesis eighteen seventeen in this in this respect. And uh, he's about to go wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, and as he's walking down the hill and and the other angels have gone on ahead of him, the Lord is debating with himself. He said, "Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do?" 
And the answer is no. And this is why. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I think we can take this into a New Testament context. Would God hide from a church-age believer priest what he's about to do? And I believe the answer is no. For these exact reasons and more in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. We are a royal family of God. We are in Christ. We have a position in Christ greater than Abraham ever dreamed of. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. I think that principle applies to us today. God has chosen us. We're to train up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Is God going to hide his will from us? No, Ephesians says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God is not in the business of hiding his will from his children. In fact, he calls us a fool if we don't know the will of God. These messages, um, it's not that he's lying, but that he is creatively communicating in such a way that it sparks these responses. John 6, verses 5 and 6, an example of Jesus doing this. All the multitudes were coming to to be fed, and and Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where do we buy bread that these may eat? Okay? Imagine Philip is kind of like a church treasurer, right? <laughs> and he's, he's looking at numbers and thinking, you know, or maybe the, the chairman of the fellowship committee, and, and there's a potluck scheduled, and they're looking out there saying, uh, we, didn't, we didn't plan for this, <laughs> okay? But he was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Say, God knows. But he uses the occasion, he says what he says as a, as a rhetorical device, to, as a means of communicating to get that across. Sometimes provoking questions which make the person think things through and come up with an answer is, is a marvelous way to, to edify and to teach. And so there's Philip coming up with a number and uh, just running numbers and thinking in earthly terms. Anyway, we're familiar with that story as well. So we ought to consider these these messages when God says, I'm going to destroy this nation. This is like the book of Jonah, right? Jonah went to Nineveh and said, God's going to destroy you. What happened? They repented. And then Jonah went up the hill and pouted and tried to be the I told you so to, to, to the Lord. All right. What's interesting, in consequence here, uh, Judah hears this calamity message and they just surrender to their hopelessness. We haven't read these verses yet. Let's look down now to, um, we get down to verse 10, I think is where we stopped, and then the application in 11 and 12. So now, then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah gets the doctrine. The the doctrine is for Jeremiah's edification. And then Jeremiah is commanded to go preach to Judah. And to go preach a, I'm going to tear you down kind of message. Okay? So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning, and that's the same verb for potter, it's the same verb for uh, the the crafting of of a pot, I am pottering calamity against you and devising a plan against you, O turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. Ways and deeds, we've discussed that before as well. But they will say it is hopeless, all right? Their response is to just surrender in hopelessness. For we are going to follow our own plans. Each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. So you you receive a message and you think, well, what's the point? It's never going to work anyway. I'm just a miserable failure. Doctrine doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. God doesn't know what he's doing. I'm a loser. And let's just throw up our hands in despair. Okay? Not sure where that illustration came from. Probably um, me. This hopeless despair. What does this hopeless despair need? It needs gentleness. All right? And as we're seeing in Galatians right now in our other series, the Galatians series, gentleness. It's with gentleness that you restore such a one. It's the spirit of gentleness that ministers to such a one, anyone caught in any trespass. Such hopeless despair needs to be gently ministered to and reminded that with God all things are possible. 
When you use the language of hopeless, you've separated yourself from God in the language of Scripture. Because with God, all things are possible. And I think these interesting passages that connect in a, in a, in a vocabulary way with the, the, the statements that Israel is making here in verse 12, Job 6.26 and Ezekiel 37.11, they are uh, interesting to consider. Let me grab them just quickly. Are you liking this? I'm saving you a lot of page flipping, aren't I? Despair. Despair should not be in our vocabulary, right? Why, why should I despair? Why should I feel discouraged? You know, there's, there's hymns that are written to this, and his eye is on the sparrow, and all these, the, the, the reminder that I have no business being in despair because I'm a son, right? God's got a plan for me. We heard that last hour. Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? There's a principle right there in the book of Job, Job 6.26. The words of a man in despair belong to the wind. When you listen to your wife or your child or your pastor or your friend or your enemy or whoever, when you listen to a believer and you know that the words they're spouting are simply the words of despair, are you going to hold that against them? (laughs) You know, it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's not coming from doctrine in residency. It's not coming, if they were in their right mind, they wouldn't be saying that kind of thing. It belongs to the wind. Let the wind just take it and never bring it back. Let the wind just take it like, you know, whatever. It's gone. Okay? Don't hold it against them. And then uh, Ezekiel thirty-seven eleven. In a national application too, by the way. Goes well with the national context of Jeremiah 18. He's looking around at a bunch of bones. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. And so I'd say that's pretty much despair right there. I mean, if you're just a skeleton laying there in a ditch, uh, what hope is the doctor going to have to do anything with that? God says, wait a minute. I'm the creator. So prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and will bring you into the land of Israel. This is, this is the great chapter, Ezekiel 37, of, the, of the, the dry bones. And he puts meat on those bones, and he breathes life back into that body, and Israel will live again. Tremendous, tremendous passage. So, you know, um, I haven't found a, a doctor yet, a physical doctor, a physician in the secular world that uh, would look at a skeleton in a ditch and have much hope. All right? Thankfully, of course, we don't have to live exclusively in this secular world and be limited to earthly thinking. We can appreciate that. All right, let's look at uh, 13 through 17 now, the next section of the chapter. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Ask now among the nations, whoever has heard the like of this, The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? Or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. They have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk in bypaths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. All right, so here's our next section, verses 13 through 17. And not even the Gentile nations would do such things. Jeremiah is urged to survey the Gentile nations. He was called as a prophet to the nations, which is remarkable. And we're going to have to make more comment on that in some upcoming chapters. I think there's more application to be made when he travels and addresses different things in different Gentile nations. We've seen a little bit of it slightly when he went to the Euphrates and buried a belt and did some things. But there's more coming up when he ministers to kings, when he ministers to nations. But here he's urged to survey the Gentile nations. Look around you. Ask among the goyim, among the nations, the Gentiles, whoever heard the like of this? You know, when, when Gentiles don't even do this kind of thing, why are you guys doing it? Okay? 
you know, and the snow, you know, it should be pretty dependable. If, uh, you know, every year you get the snowpack and every year that's coming, it's melting in the spring and it's coming down the same rivers, the same rivers, you know, snow just doesn't decide one year, you know what, I'm sick of doing this. Let's, uh, let's just stay up here on the melt, on the mountain and not melt. <laughs> okay. You know, other, uh, other applications here. If you've forgotten in, in uh, Jeremiah one ten, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah has an international ministry that's often ignored or, or overlooked in the process of teaching these 52 chapters. All right? And this is what he was called to do. Then uh, the next chapter... He says, cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there's been a, a, such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? <laughs> you know, how often does that happen? Did the, did the Germans ever decide, you know, we're tired of Odin and Thor. Let's just, uh, let's go to Zeus and, and uh, Aphrodite. They seem more fun. You know, the Greeks had their gods. The Romans had their gods. The Egyptians had their gods. The, the, the Teutonic peoples had their gods. All right. Has a nation ever changed gods? And, and those phonies aren't even real gods. And they're still loyal to them. <laughs> but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. Anyway, so there's, in chapter 2, another example when Jeremiah had to go and he wasn't asking them questions, but he was surveying these Gentile territories and observing and uh, learning for himself if, uh, if a nation had done such a thing. As a nation changed gods when they were not gods. And I think the only exception to that rule is not even an exception to the rule. But it's when a Gentile realizes the truth of who the creator God is. Like Ruth and says, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And I think the pagans can come to faith in, in, in Yahweh and uh, that's obviously not in the context of what he's observing here. Now, couple of things I think that go with this section, you know, survey around you and see that not even the, the, the pagans are doing that. I, I wouldn't build a theology on that, all right? I'm not recommending that you and I roam the streets of Austin and watch all the evil things that, that pagan Austin does and use that to, to form our theology. But if we are responding to the Word of God and we are living our lives according to the standard of the Word of God, then we can supplement that by an illustration whereby we say, you know, not even the, not even the pagans are, are doing this. I think that's, that makes a point. When even the pagans think something is bad, it's pretty bad, right? The man of incest in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul said, I can't believe what's reported to me here, but there's a man in the church at Corinth Bible Church, and, and that man has his father's wife. And, and, you know, this is such an evil that not even the Gentiles do that. All right? And, and, and the point is, is made pretty forcefully in 1 Corinthians 5.1 that uh, that ought to grab your attention. If, if you're not humble enough to listen to the Word of God, just look at this and say, Really? Have we sunk this low? Have we really sunk this low? Likewise, there's an example in the Old Testament. Joab thinks an idea is kind of foolish. Okay? First Chronicles 21. And in uh, First Chronicles 21, uh, Satan, by the way, is whispering things in David's ear. Let me grab this one. First Chronicles 21. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, David's a good king. David is the best king Judah ever has, or Israel ever has, all right? A man after God's own heart. Of course, he has a sin issue, and he fails with Bathsheba, and we, we, we get that. But here at the end of his life, towards the very end of his life, and this whispering in his ear, this movement, how did, how did he do this? How did he move David? How does he, can he control us? How does he move us to do anything? And if we feel like we're being moved, we better pay quick attention and, and really get moved by the Lord, right? We better immediately cling to the Lord. And, and we have, of course, in the church age, assets available to us in, in uh, resisting the devil so that he'll flee from us. 
oh, man, I go to this passage a lot. You know, I'm praying for our president. I'm praying for the presidential candidates. Who, who's going to be moving them? Who are their advisors? Who, who whispers in their ear? Who influences them? And then who steps up and says, oh, that's a bad idea. Okay? So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. Now David never won a battle because of superior numbers. David won a lot of battles, but it was always because the battle is the Lord's. Whether he was fighting Goliath or fighting the Philistines or whoever he was fighting, he never won because he had the, the superior number of troops. All right? The idea of taking a census and then boasting about how large we are and how many swords we have or any other thing is, is just unbiblical evil it's of the devil and uh, and even joab says may the lord add to his people a hundred times as many as there are you know occasionally folks find out i'm a pastor and they want to know well how many people are in your church and i said well there's seven billion people on the planet and some of them come to austin bible church <laughs> it's a it's a number just under seven billion <laughs> because may the lord add to his people a hundred times as many as there are God knows. It's his capacity. And, and when, when, you know, when my shepherding capacity increases, then my shepherding assignment will increase. Different things there. Anyway, so Joab says this about it. And if you know anything about Joab, Joab's a jerk. Joab is evil. Joab is, is, Joab is going to get executed uh, after David dies. Uh, Solomon will be given instructions for what to do with Joab after David's gone. And um, when even Joab says, uh, this, isn't, this isn't smart, okay? My Lord, the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should, he call, why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the King's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went through all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And uh, the rest of it happens there. So when even Joab thinks the idea is foolish, it's pretty foolish. And it's just a pattern. It's something I consider occasionally in uh, different aspects uh, we don't want to make this our primary driver of theology, but if, if I'm pursuing a practice that I'm convicted of in the Scripture, and then somebody looks at that and says, uh, that doesn't seem right. Well, okay, let me reevaluate. <laughs> why, why, do you, why do you think it's a problem? Let me, let me evaluate this. Okay? All right. Verse uh, 18 and following. Then they said, and then keep in mind, the they is the same they from verse 12. All right? It's the same they that we're saying it's hopeless. We're going to follow our own plans. It's hopeless. So here's what they're going to say. They who have no hope, now they have a plan. They said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. That'll solve the problem. (laughs) We don't like what he's saying, so let's shoot the messenger, okay? That solves everything. If you just just make it personal. Well, we don't like the guy, so obviously what he's saying has no value. Let's just dump him. Let's, uh, let's get other guys that will say what we want to hear. All right. Uh, so let's devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. You know, come on, we're Israel, we're Jerusalem, we got the temple right here. We got we can find all kinds of priests and sages and prophets. Let's say, uh, you know, let's just kill this one guy and everything will be better. Let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. And so this is their plan. The problem is when you're trying to create a plan against a prophet, uh, God is usually briefing that prophet a day ahead of time, and uh, the, the plans are known. In fact, not only are the immediate plans known, but the resultant plans are also known because they're not going to stop with the, with the slander. They're, not going to, they're going to start with a tongue, but it's not going to stop with the tongue. They're going to very quickly go from slander to murder. And so here's Jeremiah's response. Now, this is where we've got to be cautious. And in precatory prayers, either in the prophets or in the Psalms, we want to be cautious and apply them dispensationally. They have no place in the church age, all right? In the church age, we don't have any sanction in the New Testament to offer up imprecatory prayers, 
All right. Old Testament prophets is a different question. And many of them did. Abraham, David, Jeremiah, a lot of the prophets uh, uttered imprecatory prayers, which was, I think, their purview as a theocracy, as uh, prophets within a theocracy, uh, with the power of capital punishment in their hands. Let me tell you, I'm glad we're not there. All right. Uh, Samuel, you know, he would go into a place, and uh, when, when Saul spared Agag, Samuel didn't spare Agag. Samuel chopped Agag into little tiny pieces and sent those pieces around as a, as a, as a tour, as a, a visual aid of, of the wrath of God. That's why when, when Samuel shows up at Bethlehem, the elders meet him at the gates and say, uh, welcome, maybe, why, why are you here, right? They're very nervous about why Samuel's coming to town, why he showed up at Bethlehem that day. He showed up so he could anoint David, the next king of, of, of Israel. Well, so here's imprecatory prayers. By the way, that's, that's not our role. We're not Old Testament prophets in the theocracy. We are New Testament believer priests. We are imitators of Christ. And as Christ himself was a, a lamb who did not open his mouth and went to the slaughter, we are willing to suffer whatever the Lord puts us through. We don't call down imprecatory prayers upon our adversaries. So, uh, let's, let's at least read it here. Um, do, uh, do give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my opponents are saying. And, and right there you've got to wonder, you know, is God ignorant? God knows what your enemies are saying and doing and plotting. Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. See how quickly it went to violence? It's not just they were going to start with a tongue. They were, were going to start, let's strike at him with a tongue. And, uh, and it was going to start verbally. It wasn't going to stay there very long because the verbal slander was going to be ineffective. And now they've dug a pit. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away your wrath from them? Jeremiah was a constant intercessor. Like Moses, like Samuel, Jeremiah was constantly standing before the Lord and advocating on behalf of Israel, advocating on behalf of Jerusalem. He was their, uh, I mean, effectively, he was their prayer warrior, their kinsman redeemer, if you will. Okay, and several times God had to say, quit praying for these people. <laughs> Will you stop praying for Jerusalem? It says, even if Moses and Samuel joined you in this prayer meeting, I'm not going to save Jerusalem. Babylon is going to destroy them. Therefore, give their children over to famine. Yeah, that's why I say this is kind of a tough prayer. And deliver them up to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. Let their men also be smitten to death. Their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring raiders upon them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight. But may they be overthrown before you. Deal with them in thy in the time of your anger. All right, and so here's the um, imprecatory prayer that he offers up here in this context. The hopeless, despairing ones decide to reject the messenger rather than humble themselves to respond to the message. I mean, you realize they had the option. Just because the Lord told Jeremiah that they wouldn't repent doesn't mean that they couldn't repent, all right? And rather than responding to the message, they decide to shoot the messenger, to reject the messenger. But you see, when you hear a message you don't want to hear, that then becomes a humility test, doesn't it? That then becomes a check of, of well, why am I hearing this? I don't like that. Well, why don't I like that? Is it true? If it's true, then why don't I like that? <laughs> if it's true, then why would I want to live in denial of the truth? What do we call that? Insanity, right? Truth is that which conforms to reality. And I find it interesting that the father of lies is in fact the master of insanity. Because how many people, this whole culture seemingly, is, is now given over to things that, that we know absolutely are not true. And yet they speak as if they are true. They call us the liars and the deceivers when we're the ones that stand in the absolute truth. I find it extraordinary. Well, they decide to make it a personal issue against Jeremiah. 
They decide to make it a personal issue against Jeremiah, and they claim other priests, sages, and prophets will still bless them. They just make it personal and say, let's just get rid of this guy. He's the one with a hang-up, obviously. Boo, man, man, Pastor Bob must have been carnal this morning. Well, he was on a tear. Okay? Just make it personal. And then start comparing other prophets, other priests, other sages. All right? Interesting use of sage. I wish we had time. We could, we could plunge into what, what was the development in Old Testament Israel whereby wisdom was starting to become um, a whole realm unto its own wisdom literature uh, in the Solomonic tradition. Uh, in the days of Hezekiah, it became huge. They even compiled additional Solomonic Proverbs and expanded the book of Proverbs. Um, later would become uh, wisdom literature. In between the Testaments would become huge. And, and you end up with a, a, a class of scribes, a class of Pharisees, a class of, of uh, sages that would then accumulate disciples to themselves for just being wise, being sages. All right, And it's kind of neat that we get a, a glimpse of it here in Jeremiah 18, prior to the captivity even. But that's not our format, so we'll save that for the next time we teach Jeremiah, which will be after I teach Jer- uh, Isaiah verse by verse. That's about a 20-year book study, I think. All right. They're going to make it personal. They're going to make it personal. And at any time they're making it personal, I think they're missing the point, and, and intentionally so. Intentionally so. And I try to just step back and make it impersonal every chance I get. If I preach something, or I'm, and maybe I'm just in conversation with somebody outside the church, and they don't like what I'm saying, hey, not, nothing personal. Okay, I didn't write it. I'm not the author of Scripture. I'm just the teacher. All right? I'm, I'm, the, I'm a pastor. I pastor a Bible church. What, what, what do you want me to say? Here's what the Bible says. Okay? And so if you want to argue, well, then you've got to take it up with the man that wrote it, with the God who wrote it. Okay? Not with me. It's not a personal thing. All right? And I'm not condemning a person or their lifestyle or choices or their sin or anything. I'm just saying, look, here's what the Word of God says. And it's nothing personal. I'm living under the same absolute righteous standard that you ought to be living under, all right? And, and here it is. It's all grace. Don't make it personal. The plot evidently begins with a slander campaign, but quickly escalates to violence. And when you see they start with the tongue and, uh, do you, uh, and listen to what they're saying. So in verse 18, it's strike at him with our tongue. And in verse 19, it's, uh, listen to what my opponents are saying. So it starts off verbal, right? It starts off absolutely verbal. And as you might expect, that's the nature of our adversary. He was the slanderer. The, the diabolos is the slanderer. He is the liar from the beginning. And words do hurt. Oftentimes words are enough, whereby you do enough effective damage with your words, you never have to go to the murder step. Okay. Remember that ditty that mom taught you when you were a kid? That sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? My mother lied to me. Because words hurt a lot. Words can hurt for years. Uh, Damaging words from decades ago can still haunt thinking and still have to be confessed and still have to be prayed over and still have have to engage in battle over very hurtful words. Words are powerful. God designed it that way. Much of what God does, He does with words. Even creation was God spoke and it happened. God said, let there be light, and there was light. All right, words, the the faculty that God blessed us with, with with intelligible speech, it's a two-edged sword. That tongue can bless, the tongue can curse. It's the same tongue, it's the same mouth. Understand uh, the, the, the responsibility we have with our words. We've got to be careful with our words. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Some of these are coming up on some slides, maybe. Maybe not. James 3. Then again, maybe I'm thinking of our Galatians series. All right. Beginning with slander and escalating to violence. Never forget that the adversary, he, he's the diabolos. He's the slanderer. That's his primary title. When you, when you study the, the cosmos diabolicus, when you study the diabolos, who is the diabolos, the devil? What does devil mean? Diabolos means slanderer. Slanderer. 
He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Are you familiar with John 8, 44? John 8, whoops, 44. Well, that's just wrong. John 8, 44. All right. I'm the human, it's the machine, it should serve me. (laughs) They haven't totally taken over the world yet. And you know, and and this is a long context in his verses that precede this. Um, And uh, he talks about them trying to kill him and they say, oh, you're out of your mind. And um, communicates different fathers. Great message last hour, by the way, on a father and his two sons. But Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. See, these Pharisees, these unbelievers aren't even saved. They've got a different father. They don't have his father for their father. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. The unbeliever has no frame of reference for spiritual truth. They cannot spiritually discern the word of God. You have your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So when you think about that older brother of, of Luke 15, of the prodigal, the, the, who was just striving to serve his father, what do you think the unbelievers of this world are doing? We've got a whole planet full of um, Mr. Anderson. No, no, uh, Agent Smith, right? Uh, from the, the Matrix movie. The whole world is full of Agent Smiths. They're all serving the Matrix. They're all serving the cosmos. They're all serving their father, the devil. Even the nice ones, Okay. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. And what are those desires? Well, what were the five I wills? What's the satanic plan for the usurpation of God the Father? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now this verse is so amazing. We we, we should take weeks just tearing this verse apart. We should take weeks taking this these concepts going back to jeremiah 18 and seeing this link between lying and murder because it shows up i can't tell you how many places throughout the scriptures lying and murder lying and murder lying and murder god is truth god is life these are the two main attacks of satan and it's it's staggering how the scriptures link them together and cosmos wisdom kind of separates them and says oh well you know murder is big and bad and ugly and we don't want to have murderers around but lying that's no big deal it's a little white lie it's not so bad in fact some lies can be beneficial okay (laughs) does this dress make well you know some lies if your wife is asking about a particular item of clothing or what have you don't lie just creatively tell whatever truth you can tell at that moment. (laughs) So humanity comes along and makes murder a great big deal and lying not so bad and sometimes okay. Scripture, man, Scripture puts lying and murder together again and again and again and again. More often than not, the liar from the beginning was a murderer from the beginning. And this is... uh, what we're dealing with all right and so what does jeremiah do i think in all of these prayers even in an imprecatory prayer even when the prophets are telling god what to do that's where they have to let it go they can offer an imprecatory prayer but then they're done they don't have follow-up prayers like well why haven't you done it yet why haven't you done it yet i told you god what to do and even imprecatory prayer closes and then the prophet walks away from it he says, all right, I made my request known, and he leaves it in the hands of the justice of God. And I think that's our application too. Jeremiah leaves himself in the supreme court of heaven for God's absolute justice. Hand it off to the justice of God. Leave it in the supreme court of heaven. Remind yourself that you're not the creator judge of the universe. And so, yes, terrible things are being done to you, against you. But whatever's being plotted was laid on Jesus Christ on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. Every sin ever committed, or ever has been committed, ever will be committed, 
The sin of the world was laid on Jesus Christ. And the Father was satisfied. The Father was propitiated. He was well pleased. In fact, He judged that sin on His Son. And then He's taken the sin of the world and He's placed it in a bag and He's thrown it behind His back as far as the east is from the west. It has plunged into the depths of the sea. The judge of the universe has already judged that sin. And He chooses not to ever bring it back to the forefront of His thinking ever again. He's omniscient, so He can't not know stuff, but He chooses to not bring it to the front of his thinking. He chooses to not remember it. Jeremiah leaves himself in the supreme court of heaven for God's absolute justice. And we ought to do the same thing. We ought to make our prayer, or make, our, make your request known, it says. Remember, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your request known unto God. And then let it go. Say, all right, God, I gave it to you. It's yours to deal with. All right. Like uh, all of these and more. Uh, but Deuteronomy 32, 35. This is the one that gets quoted by the others. Vengeance is mine and, and retribution. Why do we think that we need to take it upon ourselves? Why do I need to think that I can be the one applying the vengeance? Study the Hebrew sometime and understand who the avenger is. And who the Redeemer is. And then you start to realize, wait a minute, it's the same word. (laughs) Wait a minute. How can redeeming and avenging, how can these things be connected? Well, if I'm not qualified to be the Redeemer, why do I think I'm qualified to be the Avenger? Why do I think I can take justice into my own hands? Why do I think that I can execute justice? Who made me judge, jury, and executioner? I'm a sinner saved by grace. In due time, their foot will slip. Well, that's not fast enough for me. (laughs) Due time is right now. In fact, right now is too late. It should have been before now. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. It's near. Well, what does God mean by near? Well, 2,000 years ago, He said, Behold, I come quickly. All right. God doesn't measure nearness like we measure nearness. And He's not slow as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And we're so quick to blast this person to smithereens. The mercy of God is, is waiting for the day of their salvation. You know, would it make a difference if you knew they were going to get saved tomorrow? Would you stop hating them so much today? They're going to get saved tomorrow, and five years from now they're going to be candidating for a pulpit somewhere. Would that make a difference to you? What if 10 years from now they become uh, the greatest evangelist the United States has ever seen and a sweeping revival spares this nation for another 100 years and because of that evangelist... Oh, no, wait, sorry. I hate that person. He's a jerk. I wish he would just die and go to hell. What is our attitude? Vengeance is mine and retribution. And retribution. Uh, Psalm 94, the whole psalm, but we'll just start with verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. It's an imprecatory prayer, and here it is. And, uh, and yet, he's leaving it in the hands of God, because God's the God of vengeance. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. See, the Bible does preach payback, but it's not payback in our carnal ways, okay? It's payback in God's holiness and righteousness and eternal justice. And so there it is. It's really, it's the whole psalm of Psalm 94. And then finally, Romans 12, 19, for church age application. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. I love that. Leave room for the wrath of God. Will you just get out of the way and let God work? Leave room for the wrath of God. In fact, have you not figured out the fact that God is using your undeserved suffering to paint a picture to that unbeliever? So that an unbeliever will have his eyes open to see something that they've never seen before. So quit griping about it and enjoy the fact that God has chosen you to be an imitator of Christ. And maybe not pleasant, maybe not fun, and you're not enjoying the process, but when he's done with it, you're going to see the eternal fruit and you're going to thank God for it. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll keep burning coals on his head. All right? Kill him with kindness. 
Do not be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. All right, well, that wraps that up. If I'm not careful, I'll get to that Romans 13 chapter again, and that's causing some issues these days. I'm teasing. I love Romans 13. We taught that. It's on the website. We better learn the doctrine and learn it quickly. All right. That's Jeremiah 18. Next week we'll come back. No, two weeks. We'll come back to Jeremiah 19. And while he happens to be at a pottery shop, he can make a purchase. And uh, he can buy a jar. And then he can smash that jar in front of everybody. All right? How fun is that? God has never let me just smash stuff in church. I've got two weeks to think about it. Maybe we can come up with something. Just start smashing stuff. Let's pray. Father, I do uh, just thank you for Jeremiah. I thank you. Father, um, man, he was probably eight years old when he started his ministry, and we don't entirely know at what age he was when some of these chapters unfold. But, Father, it's, um, this man was faithful. And he encountered such hostility, and yet he stayed humble and he stayed faithful. He was never allowed to get married. He was never allowed to have a family. He, um, you assigned him a, a ministry that uh, forsook a lot of natural human social life and family life and different things. But Father, uh, the impact of his message is, is as alive and powerful today as it ever was. Uh, it's, it's amazing, Father. D- uh, Daniel was reading Jeremiah when he was in captivity. And our Savior was uh, focused on the, the writings of Jeremiah. And we ought to be focused on the writing of Jeremiah. I think it's an ignored book. And yet, Father, it's Jeremiah that gives us the, the, uh, the new covenant. And it's Jeremiah that gives us so much. I pray that we would be mindful of these uh, doctrines, of these principles, of these teachings. That we can make personal applications, corporate applications as a local church. Even national applications, Father, as we impact our our uh, local and state and national uh, governments. Father, uh, shape our thinking by the truth of your word. And if we don't like the message, Father, just humble us to accept it. It's not the messenger, it's uh, it's the message, Father, and we need to understand that. So uh, equip us to to make these appropriate applications. Um, Father, I thank you for our visitors this morning. I just thank you for your grace, for the missionary report we had first hour, for all things. Father, this day... It's just been in a day of abundant blessing, uh, grace upon grace, beyond anything we could ask or think. So we just give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.